Good morning. Welcome. So glad um, to be with you this morning. I so appreciate that last song that we sang. Um, And I want to start off this morning by asking you a question that is something I want you to think about that goes right with that song. And then we're actually going to end up back with that idea of surrender. Um, And the question I want you to be pondering is, what is Jesus asking you to surrender today? What are you battling that you need to surrender? So just ponder that thought. How many of you are enjoying the spring weather, right? (laughs) That couple back there from Virginia, was from Virginia, they keep reminding us that the sun doesn't shine nearly as much in Ohio as it did in Virginia. Um, But I think all of us, all of us enjoy, at least, I mean... I for sure do. Yesterday was the first day of spring. We love seeing things, expressions of life beginning to come out. And I say it that way because during the drab of winter when everything looks like it's dead, there's actually a lot of life that's happening. It's just underground. It's inside where we can't see it. And when spring comes, that begins to make its way out and we start to see visible signs of that life. Now let me ask you, how many of you enjoyed there in February where it had like three or four weeks where it was just, it didn't go above freezing. There was snow on the ground. I see one hand. Come on. Oh, whew. I was afraid I'd be by myself with that. I, I, I enjoy the cold. I enjoy winter. Um, I even enjoy the drab, the drabness of seeing a, a forest that's just gray. I think there's something beautiful in that. The only thing I don't like about winter is mud, Right? All of you who, any of you who work outside get that. That's no fun. But I wonder, I wonder how many of us would enjoy and appreciate what we're experiencing right now with the sunshine and the things, the grass growing, daffodils popping out of the ground, if it wouldn't be for the drab of the winter. Some of you might say you, you sure could do without, you'd love to try it. But I think there's something about the bleakness of winter that brings or it magnifies the beauty of spring. And I think that applies in our lives as well, that the things, the dark dark times, the hard times in life magnify the beauty of the good times. So, and I I was thinking about that and leading up to Easter. So Easter is what, three weeks from today? Today we're going to be looking at the start of the Passion Weeks, the start of Jesus' suffering And then next week at the crucifixion, and then we have our communion, and then we have their Easter service, the celebration of the resurrection. That is huge. We probably don't celebrate it as much as we we do. But leading up to the power of the resurrection, the, the victory that we experience in the resurrection is the tremendous amount of darkness and suffering that Jesus went through for you and I. And I think it does something in us and for us when we take the time to sit with that, to sit with that suffering that Jesus endured for us. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles today to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at <clears throat> the account of the Garden of Gethsemane. And thank you, worship team, for those songs. They, they went so well with the idea of what I want to share today. But as we look at this piece in Mark chapter 14, you can follow along in your Bibles. It's up here. Ooh, it's kind of small. might be hard for you to read. 32 to 42 is where the text comes from. 
But as I, as I pondered and pondered this, this portion of Scripture this week, I want us to recognize that there's a part of us that will never be able to fully grasp the agony and the suffering that Jesus was facing when He was in the garden here. And I come to this piece of Scripture, there's this, there's this sense of awe, and it feels like you're treading on some sacred ground because we, we're given a glimpse into some of the things that were really personal and intimate that Jesus was feeling, the things that he faced there in the garden. And so I want us to I want to come into this with a lot of sacredness and awe at what Jesus endured or what he faced, but also I want us to learn how Jesus dealt with the hardest thing that he was ever going to face. How did he then process? How did he deal with that so that he could actually move forward into it? So if you're at Mark chapter 14, I'm going to read from verse 32 to 42. And they went to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to, Simon, to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping, taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. There's so many things that we could talk about or focus on with the disciples, their response to Jesus. They're falling asleep while they were supposed to be watching. But today, I want to stay focused on Jesus and Jesus wrestling here in the garden. And primarily, I want to stay focused on verse 36. We'll look at a little bit surrounding that, but 36 is going to be the primary, primary focus of the message. By the way, I'd encourage you to go um, read this account in the other Gospels as well. Uh, Matthew 26, Luke 24, 22, somewhere in there, you can find it. Um, and John just gives a very brief one, but each of the Gospels presents something or highlights something different. The story is essentially the same, but they each highlight something different. For example, Luke. Luke is the account. He's the doctor, so he's the one who highlights or points out that Jesus' sweat was like great drops of blood. None of the others carry that. I chose Mark for, two, for two, a couple of reasons, but one of the reasons I chose Mark is there's two words that Mark uses in his account that are the first time they're ever recorded in Scripture. The first one 
and I, I did not know this. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong. You can fact check me on this one, but I didn't find anywhere else in Scripture. Matthew mentions Gethsemane and Mark mentions Gethsemane, but this is the first time, as far as I could find, that Gethsemane is mentioned by name. Mount of Olives, right? We all know the Mount of Olives. That's super, super familiar. The Garden of Gethsemane is on the Mount of Olives. It's a place where Jesus frequented. He was there a lot. For sure in this, the last week of Jesus' life, he spent a lot of time on the Mount of Olives. He would teach in the city during the day by the temple, and at night he would go out with his disciples on the Mount of Olives. And you can read over and over the many things that happened on the Mount of Olives. It's huge. But I believe this is the first time that Gethsemane is mentioned, and I think it's significant. I think it matters. David, if you want to pop up that first slide, then the reason I think it matters, and I don't think it's an accident that it mentions Gethsemane, is Gethsemane means olive press. I'm sure that's, this is familiar stuff to most of us, I think. But I think it gives us, it gives us a picture, it helps us visualize maybe the agony that Jesus was enduring. So there is one, one of the traditional olive presses that would be, and you can figure out how that works. You'd put, fill it with olives, you'd put a stick through that stone and, and anchor it in the center, and then you would roll that stone and it would crack and break open the olives and the oil would come out. So that was one form and possibly, possibly the first of, this, of two forms, or the first of two processes in extracting olive oil. Do you want to go to the next one, David? This is the one that I want, I want us to focus on. I want you to think about or picture in your mind. This is very much like a cider press. My dad has a cider press. It's obviously, it's hydraulic. He's not hanging stones on it to press the cider out. Um, but you, you see right there in the, the basket of olives, those are just thin layers of olives that have been cracked already, and they're placed in those bags, and they're stacked on each other. And then on the end of the stick, you would hang those heavy weights and it would press and squeeze those olives. I don't know how, how, how much of the moisture's content is taken out, but when apple cider is, or apples are pressed into cider, there is very little moisture left in those apples. It is, they're, they're pressed so hard. And as, as the, the juice would come out on and on and on, they would add weight to the end there, and it would continue to press. That is what Jesus was facing and what he felt in the garden. Look at what it says in verse 33. Well, let, let me back up just a little bit. I think because I think it matters. Jesus left, they get to the garden, and Jesus left eight of his disciples out at the entrance of the garden to keep watch. Were they keeping watch for the soldiers that were coming? I don't know. But he left eight of them there, and he only takes Peter, James, and John with him deep into the garden, into some private, where he had some privacy. And it says in verse 33, and he began to be greatly distressed and troubled. In in this sacred moment, he began to even let Peter, James, and John, his three closest companions, in to begin to see the agony, the suffering, the terror which he was looking at um, of what was coming ahead of him. Another translation says it that Jesus was deeply distressed and horrified at what was about to come. And the distress that he was feeling is like that olive press, that picture of 
the very, as it were, the life being squeezed out of him. Have you ever, have you ever felt when life hits you with things that you are so hard that you don't know what to do with, where you literally feel the weight on your chest? I'm sure you felt that. That's something, maybe a glimpse of what Jesus was, was feeling, but I think it's his, his agony was much deeper. But as we go on, we find, and you probably picked up on it as we read, Jesus went three different times. He went and he prayed the exact same prayer, and each time he came back and his disciples were sleeping. And I wonder, when Jesus went and prayed, it says he, the first time it was like, or an hour. This is the middle of the night, by the way, so let's not be hard on the disciples. But he came back and he found them sleeping, and I think Jesus felt alone. I think he felt very alone. And then he goes the second time and he prays and he comes back, and he's alone. They're sleeping again. He's alone. And the third time again, he's alone. What happens when... The soldiers come and they arrest him. What happens to the disciples? They scatter, they run. And Jesus, again, finds himself alone. And I think this is part of the agony that Jesus was facing and knew that he was a face, or needed to face more of, was the being alone. On his trial, at his trial, he was alone. When he was on the cross, he was alone. And that moment on the cross when he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he felt utterly alone. And all this weight of what was coming was beginning to settle in on Jesus. This was going to happen in the next 12 hours or 12 to 16 hours. That weight was crushing him with despair. But I think it's significant. What does Jesus do when he begins to feel this agony, this despair? Where does Jesus turn? He turns to prayer, right? And so I want to look a little bit at his prayer in verse 36. And here's where the other, the, the other word that I find that's the first time used in Scripture. I don't know if this is the first time Jesus ever used the word, but it's the first time that it's ever recorded, and that is Abba. That, that, that caught me off guard. That was the, we know the Scripture, what, there's a, in Galatians, I think it's in Galatians, where... We have the, the adoption of sons, and therefore we cry, Abba, Father. But this is the first time Jesus called, his God, he called God his Father over and over and over again, right? He, he talked about God as his Father. But in no other place is it recorded that he uses the term Abba. And it, that is a child's intimate name for his father. It signifies a close connection, a cry of desperation of a child to his father. I think it's a sign of intimacy with his father, but I think it's also a sign of trust in his father. So what is it? So he, he prays, the first part of his prayer. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Matthew, I think, says it's something like, let this cup pass from me. So the cup, what was the cup that he was facing? What was the suffering that he was facing? What was the greatest agony that Jesus was facing here in the garden? Was it the physical beatings, the crown of thorns, the cross? I think that was part of it. But there was something much deeper. The wrath 
the cup of wrath. The Old Testament talks about the cup of wrath. It was filled with the punishment of your sin and mine and the sin of every person who's ever lived or will live. And all of that is going to be poured out on him. And that would bring about the moment for the first time in all of eternity where Jesus would be separated from his father. I think the agony of that was just about more than Jesus could handle. And so Jesus cries out, if it's possible, would you please remove this cup from me? There's something in this that I think displays the humanity of Jesus. I think is beautiful. And it brings out about a lot of questions. Sometimes it makes us, maybe this makes us uncomfortable. and We're not sure what to do with it. But I wonder, is this the first time that Jesus has struggled to do his Father's will when he was here on earth? Sometimes I think maybe... maybe Maybe we minimize his humanity because he was 100% human. He was 100% God, right? Wrap your mind around that one. But in his humanity, he can identify with you and I in a way that no one else can because of what he endured. Was his desire to go around or to avoid the agony? Did Jesus want a way out? Or was he simply asking for another way? Questions to ponder. Did he have a choice? Did Jesus have a choice? He had said earlier, I lay down my life of my own accord and no one takes it from me. So did Jesus have a choice? Just ponder the question. And if he had a choice... And we see the, see the agony that he's facing with what's coming ahead of him. If he had a choice, how in the world does he find the strength to walk right into it instead of running the other way? Where does that kind of strength come from? You see in... David, if you want to go to that next slide. When you break that prayer apart into two pieces, right there in the middle... I think eternity hangs in the balance. That little word, yet, Matthew uses the word nevertheless, and there's the Greek word is the Allah, A-L-L-A. Right in the middle of that, I believe that eternity is hanging in the balance. Jesus is not blindly being led into something that he has no clue what's coming. That would make him a victim. He's fully aware of what he is about to face. And yet, somehow he comes to that place where he says, yet, or nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. How does that look in your life? And how does that look in my life? What if Jesus wouldn't have said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours? Michael Card has a great quote. I'm going to put... David, you have that one up there. He says, between the last utterance and the first, that last utterance, okay, so breaking that prayer into two. And between that last utterance and the next lies an eternity of time. And in that moment, Jesus passes from the shadow of temptation into the light 
of victory. Surrendering his will, Jesus surrendering his will was not giving up. It wasn't quitting. Sometimes I think I look at surrendering all wrong. I think surrender is a sign of weakness. I can't handle this on my own. When we look at we think of it in, um, in war terms, you never surrender. A Navy SEAL is taught, you don't surrender, you, you die, you give your life before you surrender. You don't give up, ever. And yet Jesus teaches us in response to the agony that he's facing, he says, yet not what I want. You see, I don't believe that surrender is weakness. I think surrender is the key to strength. I think it is in that, I think it is in this moment that Jesus finds the strength to walk straight into the agony that he was about to face. It was when he surrendered and said, yet not my will, but your will. He is giving up. This is what gave him the strength to freely give his life. He is casting himself onto his Father, and he's depending fully on his strength. Surrender is strength, but a surrender is also the key to victory. Just reiterating what that quote from Michael Card. The end, the way last verse indicates something. It says, rise, let us be going. Where's Jesus going? He's not running away. He's walking straight out to his betrayers, to those who are going to arrest him, to those who are going to persecute him, straight to the cross. And the strength for him to do that was by surrendering his will to his Father's will. And so the question today, I asked you at the start, is what is God asking you? What do you need to surrender? How do you and I come to a place where Jesus said, yet not my will, but yours be done? How do we, how do we get to that place of surrender in our lives? I don't know what burden you're carrying or what is pressing or crushing you today. But I do know this. That Jesus, when he was wrestling with God in the garden, when he was being pressed, in that olive press being crushed as he faced the cross, that was for you and I. And whatever you're facing, he relates to it. He can relate to it. The road to surrender is paved with sleepless nights, with tears and with cries of desperation to our Father. Jesus spent all night agonizing over this. This wasn't 10 minutes, all right, okay, God, I surrender, I give it to you, now I'm good to go. This was an all-night agony. He didn't sleep all night. And he was crucified in the morning. There is no shortcut to surrender. Sometimes, sometimes we want to f- try to just smooth things over or gloss things over and not be honest with what we're wrestling with and what we're feeling. Jesus gives us a picture, an example of how honest we can be in our wrestling with God. We need to learn to sit with the pain and the disappointment that we're feeling and to honestly wrestle with it for as long as it takes. For as long as it takes for us to come to a place where we say, 
yet not my will, but yours be done. And the beauty of it is, and the difference of it is for you and I, is that our wrestling and our sleepless nights, and in that we're never alone. Jesus was alone when he faced that, but he'll never leave us alone when we're facing that. As you wrestle, as you wrestle with God in the garden, just know this, that Jesus comes and he kneels beside you. And he says, I went through this for you. And because he went through it, because he wrestled with it, and he surrendered his will to his Father, he has the authority to take the weight of what is crushing you today and take that off of you, and to carry that for you, and to take it from you. Strength is found when we surrender. As I'm sure you found in your life, when we come to that place, as we truly wrestle, as Jesus did, and we surrender whatever it is that we're facing and wrestling with, we surrender it to God, and we lay it before Him, then we have the strength to walk into it. It doesn't get us out of it. But we have a Savior who walks with us in it. And He carries the things that crush us. So as you go through this week, I encourage you to read those accounts in Scripture, the Garden of Gethsemane and the different Gospels, and sit with it. Just sit with it and meditate on the suffering and the agony of Jesus And I think what you'll walk away with is an incredible awe of how much he loves you. That's what I left with. Only his love for you and I would cause him to carry through and be willing to follow through. So let's pray. God, as we stand before you, first we say thank you, God, for for carrying the burdens that we are, or that we carry, that we don't have to carry those alone. God, whatever it is that we're facing today, whatever it is that I'm facing, and everyone sitting in here, whatever we're facing, God, I pray that we would be willing and able to wrestle, truly wrestle with it. And I pray that you would meet each one of us in our garden of disappointment, our garden of discouragement and pain. And that we'd be able to cast our burdens on you and allow you to carry that weight for us. Give us the strength to surrender. And then we find our strength to move forward as we surrender to you. In Jesus' name, amen.